Hey, listeners, a quick note on today's episode. We're going to be talking about research on preventing homelessness in other cities, and I'm sure you're wondering what's happening in the district. D.C. was not one of the sites for the study that we'll be talking about, but stay tuned. We are going to be recording a podcast on a flexible rent subsidy pilot that is being done in the district, and we'll be doing that in the next couple months. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about that pilot, please visit thelabprojects.dc.gov. And under the housing section, click on Can a Flexible Rent Subsidy Prevent Homelessness? There you will find a summary of our work with the DC Flex program. And now for the episode. Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the Executive Office of the Mayor for the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians, and I'm your host, Sam Quinney. In 2008, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD for short, launched the Family Options Study. It was a bold and rigorous assessment of the impact of various housing interventions for homeless families. This study used a rigorous evaluation design to examine what interventions, including long-term rent subsidies, short-term rent subsidies, and transitional housing, work best to reduce homelessness for families in the United States. In this episode, we've invited Michelle Wood, Danny Gubitz, and Sam Dastrup, who led the study at APT Associates. Their research in applied social science focuses on housing, homelessness, and economic self-sufficiency. Michelle, Danny, and Sam, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Very glad to have you here to discuss the Family Options Study. And I'd love if you all would be able to walk us through to start. What are the different models of housing families that you are looking at in this study? And how do they differ from each other in important ways? Sure. Well, the Family Options Study examined three different types of interventions that provide housing and assistance to families who experience homelessness. And then we compared those three types of assistance to the usual care available in the community. So the first type of assistance that the study looked at is a long-term housing subsidy or long-term rent subsidy. That typically was in the form of a housing choice voucher offered through public housing agencies in the sites and communities that participated in the study. The long-term subsidy, typically it's a tenant-based type of assistance and households will pay about 30% of their income towards rent and the remainder of the rent is subsidized through the long-term subsidy. The long-term subsidy is not provided in conjunction with social services but households that receive the subsidy are free to seek other types of services available in their community. The second type of assistance that the study looked at is short-term rent subsidies, or rapid rehousing is the way that that was operationalized in the study communities. That provided short-term assistance, and for the families in the study, that typically lasted a median of about eight months. Uh, That like the long-term subsidy, subsidized housing in the private housing market, but was a shorter term than the long-term subsidy. Rapid rehousing also includes some case management, but that case management is really focused on helping families to stabilize swiftly in mainstream housing. Would you be able to give an example of what that case management might look like for a family? 
Sure. The rapid rehousing programs would typically meet with families about every three months to verify the income and recertify for the program. And they would develop a plan to make sure families were on track to be able to pay the rent on their own when the short-term assistance ended. So the case management was really focused on self-sufficiency and employment and helping to connect families with other services. The short-term assistance didn't come with, you know, more intensive types of social services. Mm -hmm. So generally light case management coming with rapid rehousing. Yeah. And then the third type of assistance that the study looked at is called project-based transitional housing. And for this study, we defined it as housing in facilities or units of housing in facilities that are owned and operated by transitional housing program providers. Mm -hmm. That type of assistance is limited to 24 months. The people in this study who used that type of assistance used it for an average of 13 months. Mm. It's distinguished from the long-term and short-term subsidies because it's time-limited, but also because it comes coupled with very extensive and intensive social services. A wide range of social services are provided in conjunction with the housing. It's kind of based on the premise that many homeless families have underlying factors or problems that need to be addressed before families can be successful in housing. So a little bit of the idea of that homelessness or housing instability is just a symptom of some other challenges that might be present or barriers that might be present in the family's life. Exactly. So there's a different kind of philosophy coming with the transitional housing type services that families really need to do address any kind of psychosocial issues that they might have so that ultimately they can be successful in maintaining housing stability. And there's a contrast there to the long-term subsidy, which is that this is a housing affordability problem primarily for a family, typically a mother with children, that it's about having the resources to pay the rent with some security to it, which is a contrast to the project-based transitional housing, you know, some therapeutic things for other aspects of the family's life. Right. You can think of that as a totally different philosophy, that all the family needs is just help renting an apartment but with no other services because the issue is mainly an affordability issue. Mm -hmm. No other coupled services that they still might be accessing services available through other agencies, but it doesn't have to be tied to the housing. Yeah, absolutely. How did you all get involved in this study? We kind of glossed over the role of APT and of HUD in designing this. So how did this start for you all? Well, I think policymakers at HUD for a long time had been thinking about, you know, wanting to learn more and to generate evidence. And so APT was awarded a contract. HUD put out a request for proposal back in 2008. APT assembled a team from APT Associates. We have partnerships with Vanderbilt University, with several other partners in our survey research team at APT. And so we worked as a contractor to HUD starting in 2008. We worked very closely with HUD for a couple of years to design the study, to figure out which interventions to examine, how to define those interventions, and then recruit communities. So we got involved. I mean, this is very much a part of APP's mission to conduct rigorous design and help government agencies answer questions that are particularly important. Addressing family homelessness was a high priority for HUD, but also for other federal agencies. The federal government set really ambitious goals to try to end family homelessness. So it's a really compelling policy question. And we were just very pleased to be able to bring 
the tools of rigorous research and methodology to bear on this, to develop, you know, a very detailed and rigorous design that would help HUD answer these important policy questions in a rigorous way to help inform decisions that they make. So how should we think of the participants in this group? How are they recruited for this study, for this project, and what were the eligibility criteria? So 12 communities participated in the family option study, cities and county areas around cities, metropolitan areas all across the United States. Families were recruited from emergency shelters. Hmm. So families had to be staying in emergency shelter, and they had to have been staying in shelter for seven or more days. The objective of this study was to really look at the effects of assistance provided to families whose shelter stay was seven or more days, so families that couldn't resolve a housing crisis quickly. So we're really trying to look at families who we defined for the study as homeless based on that seven-day shelter stay. So our research team spoke to families who had been in shelter for seven or more days. We explained the study to them, asked families to provide informed consent. And then we also did some pre-screening because we wanted to make sure that we assigned or sent families to programs that would be able to serve them. And Hmm. all families were eligible for usual care. Families assigned to usual care didn't receive a direct referral to any particular program, but they were free to stay in shelter or seek any type of assistance that they might be able to find on their own. And our data over the follow-up period shows that families assigned to usual care did indeed use a wide range of programs. For the other interventions, we knew from the local programs what their eligibility criteria were, and we did a bit of pre-screening before random assignment to find out if families appeared to be eligible for the interventions that were available in their community. So that was part of our process to enroll and do random assignment. We were trying to set up an experiment that would provide you know, really strong causal evidence about the effects of providing families with a direct priority access to these different kinds of assistance. Mm-hmm. So the families, they're from 12 communities, but on the median age of the family head was age 29. Most of the families were headed by women. And typical family had one or two kids. Only like 17% were working right at baseline at the time they enrolled in the study. Family income in the past year was very low, was extremely low, I think about $7,000 around or $7,400 a year for these families. Almost a third had symptoms of psychological distress or PTSD at the time they enrolled. Two-thirds had had a previous episode of homelessness at some point in their life. And in about a quarter of the families, at least one child was separated from the family at the time of the shelter stay. That's right. So in the shelter already, a quarter of the families, there was a child for who for some reason couldn't be with the family. The core design of the study then is that we're taking families who are equivalent and then randomly assigning them to one of these different types of interventions. And for the interventions that Michelle talked about for the long-term rent subsidy and the short-term rent subsidy embodied in rapid rehousing and the project-based transitional housing, so then Families who were assigned to one of those three, they were assigned basically priority access to those interventions. And what that meant was they had a reserve slot for them 
at a program so they could immediately go. They had mm. something waiting for them. I want to narrow in on the design a little bit more. And why is random assignment so useful in this case? I could imagine that it would have been easier to just look back at our data, even across cities and say, well, let's look at how people do when they get into a long-term voucher versus rapid rehousing versus project-based housing, and just look at the outcomes of those or compare Boston's model to Minneapolis's model. Why does random assignment help you in this case? Thank you for asking the question. Random assignment gives us a completely believable, we have this word, counterfactual. What would happen if someone wasn't given priority access to a particular program? We can really see what would happen in the absence of this offer. So as you suggest, if we just looked at data, there's a lot of data. There's homeless management information system data. There's HUD data from housing authorities. If you just look at the data and you look at outcomes of families who have used the different programs, you can see their outcomes but you might suspect that the family knows something about themselves that have made them choose this program. There's a term in that in economics, which is just selection bias. It's the things that we don't know about the family. The family knows about themselves, and they're making choices in their lives, and they're trying to make the best choices they can. And so they see different things that they could do, and they're going to pick you know, option A because they think that's best for them. And we don't get to see what happens if they were in option B, because that's really what you want to compare. That this family, if they were in option A versus option B, we don't get to see it. It's the random assignment that gives us on the group level the counterfactual. What would happen except for this intervention that's being offered? Yeah, a retrospective data analysis can tell you a lot, but it can't get you that apples to apples idiom comparison of this family is the same as that family, except that one of them had access to this and the other one had access to that. If you're just looking at people that ended up on their own in one or the other, there's things that are different about those families that make that comparison fundamentally no longer about what type of service are we providing the family. Then the comparison is more about, and what's different about the family on all these other characteristics where this random assignment study process, you really now are comparing apples to apples. You have a family that is really, on average, counterfactual, all of these technical terms. It's a valid comparison for answering the question that we're trying to answer. And one of the motivations for HUD to conduct this study using random assignment, I mean, conducting a random assignment study does take a big investment and commitment among the communities and the program providers and the designers of the study. But HUD really wanted strong evidence. There had been a lot of observational studies of different kinds of assistance where one could look at outcomes for families who participate in different programs and know what happened to those families. HUD didn't have the ability to say, but how does that compare to other? You know, would those families have done just as well if they had not received that assistance or received a different kind of assistance? So HUD was a really strong supporter of developing rigorous evidence to help inform their policy decisions. And one other question on the setup. So you mentioned that the families that weren't selected for any of these three housing options get business as usual. Can you say more about what that looks like in terms of what services would be available to them across jurisdictions? So yeah, that group was the usual care and it was business as usual. And so the kinds of services that were available to them were in some sense the same as in the other groups, they could go to the housing authority and get on a waiting list if they weren't on one already. You know, typically in large cities, those waiting lists are years long. It's a long way to get a long-term rent subsidy. 
Cities are now organized in continuums of care, a system, a homeless services delivery system within each community. So they could interact with that system and try and get access to a short-term rent subsidy. And the same with transitional housing. They could work with different transitional housing providers and see if there's an available slot. And a lot of families did. And let me just say, we said that families began their participation in the study after seven days or more of staying in emergency shelter. Families could stay in the emergency shelter longer Mm -hmm. is another service that's right there. So even if I were a part of a family and I lost the proverbial coin flip between usual care and rapid rehousing, there's a chance that I could, through my own means, go wind up at rapid rehousing all the same. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. And a lot of families did. Yeah, one of the really nice contributions of this study is the usual care group can tell the communities a lot about what kinds of assistance families can locate on their own when they don't get a direct, you know, referral to a slot that's waiting for them. So we learn a lot about how the homeless assistance system works in these communities. And we found that the usual care group did, you know, avail themselves of a wide range of assistance. And we've already done a number of follow-on research, even exploring that wealth of information that we have about these families' lives. If you go to the Family Option Study resources on the web, you know, you'll see short research about the employment outcomes over the three years following enrollment in the study for families experiencing homelessness that really just looks at this usual care group. What is it? What's it like in these 12 communities across the country to have a prolonged homelessness experience? And so, can't get into all of those things today, but that is another contribution in and of itself, you know, is what happens to these families. Yeah. And so when you're thinking of doing that pre-screening for the priority access, so if I was part of a family who had been in shelter for seven days, in order to be eligible for the study, would I have to be eligible for all three options at once? That's a good question and one that we thought a lot about. So no, the eligibility screening that Michelle was talking about was ultimately a family needed to be eligible for at least one of those three different kinds of interventions. You know, everyone was eligible for usual care by definition. And then they were randomly assigned among the study arms, I'll say, that they were both eligible for and that had availability because this was done in real time. Sometimes even if they were eligible, let's say for a certain type of program for transitional housing or rapid rehousing, there might not be a slot there for them right then. And the whole point was that when the study assigned a family to an intervention, we wanted the family to be able to use it pretty soon or immediately. So it needed to be reserved for them. They need to be eligible for it and it needed to be available. So how that worked is some families were randomly assigned among all four groups, Mm -hmm. and then some were randomly assigned among three groups, and then some were randomly assigned among two groups. This is maybe jumping way ahead, but I'll jump there, which is then the way we analyzed it is that each pair of interventions is then its own experiment. So we looked at long-term rent subsidy versus usual care, or short-term rent subsidy versus usual care as its own experiment. And then the families that were in each of those kind of pairwise experiments, they were eligible for both and they both were available. So they are exactly comparable. Mm -hmm. And can you say more why that was important for what you were trying to understand about these? So the objective of the study was to examine a wide range of outcomes that pertain to family well-being. So we were looking at things like housing stability, family stability, family preservation, adult well-being, 
child well-being and self-sufficiency. And so the study took place over a three-year follow-up period to find out what kinds of effects those interventions had for that time period. And what's different about families experiencing homelessness from individuals experiencing homelessness is that there are children involved. It's really salient. It's really focused on how the children are doing, how the experience might be affecting the children. And the children's outcomes are really a big part of the study because it's of great concern. Mm -hmm. And we defined a family as one or more parent in shelter with at least one child who is age 15 or younger. And we did that because we didn't want the children to reach age 18 before the end of the follow-up period. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, if they were to be 17, then they might be aging out of the system. Was there a practical data constraint or life constraint, actually? It's more than just the data question. Once the children reach age 18, we would need to provide informed consent to them as an individual. Mm -hmm. So if we recruited families who had at least one child age 15 or younger, that gave us the ability to collect information from the parent about that child up till they reached Mm -hmm. age 18. So when our CVs say that we can write a technical appendix, we're not kidding. (laughs) When you you go look at the details of of the statistics and the the attention to detail, you know, when I came to work at APT, the study had been going on for a year or two and working through it with Danny, I was really impressed as a new economist that this is really a fantastic implementation of rigorous social experiments that's difficult to do correctly. And I think the reason that this study has been given awards in the academic community and gotten attention otherwise is that it was successful, that Danny and Michelle and the team really paid attention to detail, got in there on the ground and did it right and did it well, and that these results are really strong for that reason. Yeah. Let's get to the payoff. So what did you find from the study? And why don't we start first with just the effects on housing? And it would be useful if you would be able to just give a brief overview of how you're measuring that housing stability. So we have three key measures of housing stability. One is a survey measure. Have you experienced any homelessness in the last six months before the survey point? Another one is, have you experienced any doubling up? So doubling up is staying with family or friends because you don't have somewhere else mm-hmm. to stay. Doubling up is you know, of great concern. It doesn't meet most definitions of homelessness, but it's obviously a, of concern. The family is vulnerable and it's an unstable housing situation. And then we have another measure that's based based on the Homeless Management Information System, HMIS, records largely based on that about emergency shelter stays. Also some survey responses about emergency shelter stays, but just in the latest 12-month period before the survey, are there any emergency shelter stays? Mm -hmm. So those are the three key outcomes. And so what do you find? What do we find? The most striking thing we find is maybe not all that surprising, that priority access to a long-term rent subsidy sharply reduces homelessness, it sharply reduces doubling up, and it sharply reduces stays in emergency shelter. I think it reduces homelessness by at least half, and it reduces doubling up in emergency shelter use by a half or three quarters. So So really large effects, not just statistically significant, but maybe not meaningful for a policymaker. That's right. Very large. Again, maybe not that surprising because what the long-term rent subsidy represents is a place to live, Mm -hmm. your own place to live. Yeah. Yeah. One number that kind of jumps off the page, any stay in emergency shelter in the last year, essentially from when we followed up, goes from 20% of the usual care group three years later down to 4.4% 
of folks that had the long term. So this is a lot of families that are now not returning to homeless shelters. Yeah, absolutely. And what about the other two housing options in this, the other two treatment arms? So the short-term rent subsidy, the rapid rehousing, had equivalent outcomes as usual care. So no impact. It's important to remember that the usual care group was getting a good deal of assistance from a variety of programs, but basically equivalent rates of homelessness and doubling up in emergency shelter use. So a family that got that coin flip one way or the other into rapid rehousing or usual care. If we look at them for a year, two years, three years in terms of their housing situation would look really similar, right? Really similar. Yeah. And what about the project-based? Project-based transitional, the transitional housing, that's the high services intervention. There's smaller effects on housing stability that seem to be largely due to the fact that transitional housing programs are longer term programs. Uh, Families stayed in them, I think about 12 or 13 months on average, but could stay up to two years. Mm -hmm. And so by virtue of being in a transitional housing program, that means that a family is not doubled up. The homeless definition that we use in our survey does not include transitional housing. There's a technicality there in HUD's official definition. People who are staying in transitional housing are counted as homeless. In our study, our definition of homeless doesn't include transitional housing because we're thinking of it as an intervention. So some reduced homelessness and some reduced emergency shelter that we think is in a way kind of mechanical because the family is still in the transitional housing program then they're doubling up lower homelessness. So like, because the intervention itself is we are going to provide you with a physical home to live in or apartment unit to live in. When you say mechanical, it means like that is the intervention. So we would be surprised in instances where people are not housed, at least during the period that they're there. Yes, that's exactly right. Although the size of those effects are much smaller than for the long-term rent subsidy. Really interesting. Is there any kind of interesting tidbits about the usual care, about those outcomes that you found or that surprised you for that usual care group? You know, I think one thing that we see is we look over a three-year period, while many usual care families may not have returned to shelter or whatever, they still weren't faring very well. There were low levels of employment. We enroll people in the study at a low point in their lives. They're in shelter. That's a trolling point. So there's some improvement over time in the usual care group just by virtue of time passing from that really critical point at which we identified them for this study. But at the same time, they're still low income, low levels of employment, and pretty high levels of psychological distress. So it's a group that still is struggling even after that shelter stay. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm remembering the numbers. I think it's at at the time that the families are enrolling in the study, maybe only 17% of the family heads had worked for pay in last week. And then in our long-term follow-up survey about three years later, that number is higher, but it's still only about 37%. Mm -hmm. So that's only a little more than a third of the family heads who are working for pay. But still, I think an important lesson in that when someone is seeking assistance, that doesn't mean that's going to be the state of the world for them or the state of their family forever. There's going to be some sort of correction that will happen naturally or adjustment that'll happen. Yes. And remind us of the other outcomes that you were looking at for families, because obviously housing is just one piece of the picture of what you want to do if you're a government or any organization 
that cares about the social good. Housing might not be the only yeah. thing. What are the other things that you looked at? Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the strengths of the study that it looks at these four other domains. So it's looking at family preservation. It's looking at adult well-being. That's the well-being of the family head. It's looking at child well-being. And it's looking at a group of outcomes that we call self-sufficiency, which have to do with work and income. And we've got food security in there mm -hmm. too. And what do you find there? I imagine when we start expanding the pool of outcomes, we get much more mixed results generally. But what are some of the key findings across those areas? Well, as Danny said, the striking finding for the long-term subsidy compared to usual care in terms of its reduction in homelessness and improvements in housing stability is somewhat you know, expected or not surprising. But what is new is that we also found that priority access to the long-term subsidy had radiating effects in other aspects of family well-being. We found reduced psychological distress among the heads of household, reduced incidence of intimate partner violence, some improvements for children in terms of school attendance, in the shorter term, in 20 months, we also found a reduction in absences from schools, substantial improvements in food security, and... At the 20-month mark, so about a year and a half after families enrolled in the study, there was a reduction in child separation. So one of the things about a family experiencing homelessness is that depending upon the living situation, there might not be enough space for all the family members. And so sometimes the parent has to find another place, usually for the older children, right? The younger children are staying with the family head, but sometimes an older child has to be put with a friend or a relative because there's no space. And so that was a key outcome is the separations from own children. And at the year and a half point, yeah, access to the long-term rent subsidy reduce these child separations compared to usual care. Interesting. And what about the other two arms? How do they stack up in terms of these outcomes? So priority access to the short-term rent subsidy to rapid rehousing, basically no effects on family preservation. Generally, I think no effects on adult well-being. There were a couple of things. There was something in child well-being. I think it improved child behavior problems compared to usual care. And the short-term mark, about a year and a half after random assignment, there was some small effects. It looked like maybe income was a little bit higher and that food security was a little bit better. Mm -hmm. We did not see those at the three-year mark for rapid so they rehousing. They started to fade out. Yeah, the... so a couple scattered things for rapid rehousing, but not a real pattern of effects like we saw with the long-term rent subsidy. And then for transitional housing, pretty much the same story. No effects on adult well-being. And that's surprising, right? Because transitional housing is the heavy services intervention. A lot of services are available. And one might think that since that's where the intervention is really concentrating its focus on, that that's where you would find some effects. But we didn't find effects on adult well-being, nor child well-being, nor I think in any of the self-sufficiency, any of the work or income or food security. Hmm. So especially when we're talking about the world of rigorous research and looking for things that are evidence-based, that seems like a fairly definitive finding. Is it just that simple to say we should give everybody long-term vouchers? Or what recommendations would you have for a jurisdiction like DC in terms of where they should go based on your findings? Another one of the great things about the study is that it has this whole cost dimension. Mm -hmm. And so the size of these effects and the importance of the effects need to be kind of considered hand in hand with how much these different interventions cost. So there's a whole cost part of the story. Maybe I'm going to let Sam tell it. So we've got equivalent kind of outcomes in 
looks like basically most of the domains, but on the cost side. Equivalent to usual care. Equivalent to mm -hmm. usual care. Yeah, right. So the initial takeaway that you might have is, okay, great. Let's just switch everybody to permanent subsidies. But permanent and subsidy <laughs> sounds expensive. Mm -hmm. And is this something that could be done? And I think this is a little bit of actually the cost analysis is a little bit of a good news story there in that the cost of providing these long-term subsidy is very high for the folks that got them relative to those that didn't. But the folks that didn't return to emergency shelters much more frequently and use these other programs, transitional housing, which is very expensive. So when we add up the cost of all program use during this three-year follow-up period, we find that the long-term subsidy is only about 9% more expensive, hmm. right? Than so, usual care, yeah. So relative to business as usual, if you're essentially investing 10% more resources, you're getting these better child behavior and school attendance and domestic violence and all of these radiating benefits. If you can't afford that, in terms of a recommendation, this rapid rehousing, this quick short-term subsidy doesn't find any outcome benefits, but it is less expensive compared to usual care essentially 9% less expensive over that three-year period to provide that quick upfront subsidy. So that's another clear answer, even though we're not necessarily improving this suite of outcomes that we would like to, we're at least more efficient at the assistance that we're trying to provide. So I think in terms of policy recommendation, that's the cost-effectiveness aspect that we were able to add to that question. Yeah, kind of an important aspect of having the randomized setup that a lot of times you don't think of is you know a little bit more about what the usual care group is accessing and what we're spending on them, whereas I would think the typical tendency that policymakers have or just anyone would have is I'm thinking of when I have a decision to, say, usual care or rapid rehousing or a permanent subsidy. And I know that at face value, these cost, you know, X, Y, and Z amounts. But really what your design helps us think about is what's the longer term cost of that, or at least over three years? Yes. What's the comparative cost? What am I going to end up spending? You know, otherwise, I keep thinking of the ethics of the experiment here, right? And we're going to use the resources that we have to try to help assist families that are in an emergency shelter. Um, and now we're able to compare, you know, well, what resources would we have used in another scenario? Yeah, absolutely. And then for a jurisdiction like D.C., we now have, thanks to those efforts and the commitment of HUD and your work, we don't know exactly what happens here with our programs, but we certainly have a strong idea of what the evidence suggests and how we should do a path forward. So it's a great contribution to our work and the work of cities as a whole. So... One of the things that makes this so powerful and generalizable is that you're doing this across many different sites, so 12 different sites. But I imagine that's also part of some of the challenges that Sam was referencing. So what do we know about what was different across sites, either from the participants or the programs, economic conditions, like what sorts of things are different about them and how did you go about addressing them? So the size of this study is almost 2,300 families, but when that's divided into 12 different communities, the number of families who are participating in the study in each community is actually not that large, you know, at the largest, maybe 260, 270, if I'm remembering correctly. So our ability to look at different impacts of interventions across communities was limited. The cities are very different, right? They have different employment rates. The thing that first jumped to my mind when you asked the question is, the service milieu, because different communities have different kind of philosophies, different things that they're trying to assist families experiencing homelessness. So the two that jump to my mind, and maybe others will jump to your mind, Sam and Michelle, are 
Boston was one of the communities. Boston has a strong commitment to ultimately getting families long-term rent subsidies. So that was a high number of families in Boston ultimately at some point, maybe not immediately, but even if they weren't assigned to our long-term rent subsidy arm, they would eventually get long-term rent subsidies because that's something that the community has decided. And then Minneapolis is another one of the sites. And Minneapolis is one of the cities that pioneered the use of short-term rent subsidies, of rapid rehousing. It's one of the homes of rapid rehousing. So that rapid rehousing assistance was widely available to families. That's kind of a go-to thing. So that's different than a lot of other communities. And clearly the communities have, you know, very different housing markets. So people assigned to the long-term Rent subsidy would be facing tight rental markets, looser rental markets, things like that. So there were some differences there. But overall, we went through a really extensive site recruitment process, and we talked with lots of communities once we had the design of the study sort of laid out and figured out to try to see which communities seemed amenable to the design we were trying to implement. We tried to select communities in which these distinctive models were operating and operating at a sufficient scale that we could assign families to them. So, you know, I think it's also not a nationally representative group of communities, but it does include, you know, a wide range of areas from all parts of the U.S. And so we think it gives a strong picture of how effective these kinds of housing and service interventions were. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, when you're talking about running a well-designed and well-implemented and tightly controlled experiment, it's great if everywhere it's being done, it's being done exactly the same way as if you were in a science laboratory. What do we know about what was different or not different about the models by jurisdiction? Is rapid rehousing the same in Minneapolis as Boston for the context of the study? Well, when we talked to communities, there were some parameters that were fairly similar as far as rapid rehousing. We were focused mostly on rapid rehousing, not homeless prevention, which Mm -hmm. can be also part of that. We were talking about short-term rent subsidies. Some rapid rehousing programs provide case management only, and we weren't focusing on those kinds of programs for the study. We did a lot of monitoring during the enrollment process. We had lots of communication with the communities that were participating with each shelter to find out, you know, are there families in shelter who are available for the study? Are there slots available in transitional housing? Is there rapid rehousing of it? You know, so we had a lot of communications and data collection to understand how the programs were being implemented and tried to kind of account for that in our descriptive analyses. I think the strength of the design, again, goes back to random assignment so that when we look at the entire sample, we're able to be really confident that we're looking at a difference between long-term subsidy and usual care or short-term. We think that there's enough consistency within the intervention type that we've got pretty robust evidence. Well, I was going to jump in and just say that it's also nice in some ways that it's not a lab coat lab Mm -hmm. in that one thing we're really trying to do, I think, as Michelle said at the beginning, is look at things that actually exist at options for trying to assist families experiencing homelessness that are actually fairly prevalent in communities across the country. And so that the findings that we have now give a pretty clear answer of, you know, among the things that are out there that people are actually doing with some variation, as you point out, but the underlying 
theory and idea and practices close enough to say, okay, we found something, we found some clear evidence here about things that appear to work to improve family outcomes and how much they cost in comparison. So Sam, you're in a good position to understand the variation in programs, you know, particularly among transitional housing programs and rapid rehousing programs, whereas Housing Choice Voucher is is more similar across cities. The housing authorities are more similar with the Housing Choice Voucher. But even with the local variation, right, these are local community groups who are running the program. So of course there's variation. One thing that might lead to commonality is common funding streams, Hmm. right? There's federal dollars that are funding these programs. And I think they're fairly broad, right? The guidelines for what a program looks like to get this funding stream, but it's still common among the programs in the different Hmm. communities. Yeah. And as Danny said, I was leading the cost data collection group where we took teams of researchers and sat down with the folks running shelters and running transitional housing programs and running rapid rehousing programs and kind of went through what's their staffing, how many bedrooms are there, and what's the building like. And sure, there's emergency shelters that are in the basement of churches, and there's emergency shelters that are in places that look more like apartment buildings, and there's a lot of variation. But I would say the transitional housing programs are pretty consistent and recognizable, and other programs are pretty consistent and recognizable. And one thing that really struck me, a lot of folks on the ground that are really dedicating their professional life, and there's a blur to personal life on really trying to help families overcome this challenge of homelessness. And that was rewarding to kind of be able to give them answers. They would ask, have you figured this out yet? And it's been great to be able to now have something to tell them. So are there any plans for longer term outcome measures? I'm thinking of the moving to opportunity study, which has been this kind of wealth of knowledge about things ranging from aspects of housing and education, but also to social class and social mobility. What's the long-term plan for looking back at this? Is there a plan to look back at this in five years, 10 years? Yeah. Well, HUD has clearly made a big investment in the family option study to collect this wealth of data over a three-year period. And one thing that Sam was mentioning a little bit earlier, other agencies are using that broad, very rich data set to explore other areas. So for example, HHS has tapped into the family options data to do some shorter research briefs on areas of focus of particular importance to HHS. HUD has done some additional follow-up to just see if it's possible to reach the families that are still in the study in a longer-term process, and they're now reviewing the results of that to determine whether additional data collection could be considered. The data generated through the study, HUD is making that available to researchers who are interested in using the data that have been collected so far. So there are no firm plans for any longer-term research, but it is a rich platform that's been set up, and there are ways to consider using it further. Yeah, about three-quarters of the families have consented to have basically their data match to allow researchers, this is not forever, but still for the next few years, to match their identifiers, their social security number, their name, to other administrative data sources that the government might have. The families have consented to this, about three quarters of the family. So there's, so there's that opportunity for the next few years to do more, and those data are held at the Census Bureau. That's great. Important that they have the opportunity to have their own privacy preserved in it, but what a gift that those families give to our knowledge of how do we best serve people as a country and also in more localized jurisdictions. Yes. Michelle, Danny, and Sam, thank you all for being on the podcast at D.C. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. Our producer is Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at thelab.dc.gov, where you can sign up for our mailing list. You should also follow us on Twitter at thelab underscore DC. However you choose to connect with us, you can find more information on our work and stay updated on what we're doing. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney. 